From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From people spitting on grocery store clerks to suspects telling police they have COVID-19 during arrests, how are district attorneys handling violations of the state's public health order? We're not going to prosecute our way out of an epidemic, and the best policy is going to be to educate compliance. However, egregious behavior is going to be prosecuted. Then dozens of Coloradans open up about a day in the life during the pandemic. We'll hear from one of them in a special project called COVID Diaries Colorado. And the Lumineers share how addiction in their families changed their lives and influenced their music. I felt so bound and like tied up by like the idea that we weren't allowed to talk about this among each other or to that person. You blamed it all on your kids. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. A grocery customer angrily coughed at a clerk. A domestic violence suspect spit at an officer and claimed he had COVID-19. These are just a few of the cases prosecutors have had to consider on the law and order side of the coronavirus pandemic. CPR's Allison Sherry has been talking with DAs around the state about what they're seeing and what charges they're bringing. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Avery. Allison, let's start with those examples I just mentioned. Coughing at a grocery clerk, claiming to try to infect an officer with COVID. Do you have any more details? So the coughing at the clerk story happened in Bale. A guy was asked to stand six feet back at a grocery store. Um, He said there was a public health conspiracy, and then he started purposely coughing on food and on the clerk. The other incident was in Boulder, a domestic violence arrest, and the guy claimed he had COVID-19 to cops when they were trying to arrest him. And there was another story in Grand Junction. A guy tried to hold up a convenience store at gunpoint wearing a ski mask, but actually the mask didn't cover his mouth. So... You know, I think generally prosecutors and cops would say these are people who are trying to make people more afraid than they already are. And it turns out prosecutors across the state are cracking down on stuff like this. You know, generally speaking, uh, tolerance for violating the state's public health order in and of itself is pretty high. If you had a big house party and cops were called, they're not likely to give you a ticket or issue a summons for your arrest on something like that. But if someone goes beyond violating the order to putting people at purposely at risk of this deadly disease or even just trying to make people more afraid, that's when prosecutors are bringing down the hammer. Were those men you mentioned charged with anything? Well, they're charged with a host of things, but prosecutors also tacked on violating the state's public health order with the other charges. DA Michael Doherty of Boulder, um, he described it this way. You know, this crisis should bring out the very best in all of us. And our actions have an impact on all those around us, especially during this crisis when our community is in such a difficult time. And we should all be held responsible for our actions and the impact we have on others. And certainly the individuals who take advantage of the crisis for their own benefit should be held responsible for Doherty has charged four or five people in Boulder for violating the public health order in addition to other crimes like domestic violence or burglary. The state is starting to move out of the stay-at-home order phase of the pandemic, but many restrictions are staying in place. I'm curious, have there been many prosecutions either of people or businesses for violating the stay-at-home order? Not that I can tell individuals anyway. There have been some businesses that have violated it, yes. Um, There's no statewide data available on this for many 
crime statistics, and you know, there's a lag anyway on crime statistics in general. No one I found has been criminally charged with violating the public health order. There was a guy in Fort Collins. He refused to close his smoke shop when non-essential businesses were ordered closed. And he was eventually arrested after health authorities tried to get him to close voluntarily, and, and he wouldn't. But, but you know, generally, most people don't want these cases, and, and law enforcement are trying not to clog up the jails anyway, so they're holding back. So people are only getting charged if they're suspected of other crimes? Yep, that's that's generally the approach taken around the state. Uh, George Brockler is the DA of Arapahoe and Douglas County, and he said he's seen a lot of his deputies add public health order violations to DUI charges. I want to see what the circumstances are, but it would be it, it would bother me quite a bit if, in addition to driving drunk, uh, people are doing it at a time where you're not supposed to be out at all. That would be something that would separate it from your normal drunk driving. I just don't know what I end up doing with that. You know, he, he sort of mentioned it there, but he doesn't know how all these violations are going to play out when they hit the courts. Do they get plea bargained away? I don't, you know, I don't know. What's the overall state of crime during the coronavirus? I've seen stories saying that it's dropped a lot. You know, in most categories, crime has slowed down at the end of March and the beginning of April. Um, In some jurisdictions, there's been a rise in domestic violence. You know, everybody's home. You can kind of see it. Specifically in Aurora and Colorado Springs, their numbers have gone really high. There's also been, interestingly, a spike in car thefts across the metro area. I talked to a commander about that um, from the Auto Theft Task Force, and he said a lot of people who've been arrested say they're stealing cars so they had somewhere to live. So this is kind of an economic impact crime. And that's obviously sad. Allison, as our justice reporter, you're also tracking what's going on with COVID-19 in Colorado's prisons. On Friday, we got word there appears to be a pretty significant outbreak at the facility in Sterling. Yeah, and this is this is what we know. I am following this. There were initially eight positive COVID-19 inmates at the Sterling Correctional Facility and some additional sick guards. So the Department of Corrections decided to test 473 people, sick and non-sick, to see if they had um, had a, had exposure or had COVID-19. A lot of the tests haven't come back in yet, but so far 138 people are positive. Sterling is the state's largest prison. There are 2,400 incarcerated men there. Um, now the director of the Department of Corrections is trying to figure out how to move forward, how to keep the infection on the east side, which is where the outbreak is, how to keep the guards um, safe. You know, this isn't just about the inmates and, and, and the offenders. It's about the staffers. Yeah. Corrections officials told me at the end of last week, there were 125 guards out on quarantine. They have families and kids. And so, you know, this is an issue that affects the whole community. Thank you, Allison. You're welcome, Avery. CPR Justice Reporter Allison Sherry on how Colorado's prisons and law enforcement and district attorneys are dealing with the public safety challenges of coronavirus. CPR has teamed up with other newsrooms for a statewide look at a day in the life of the coronavirus pandemic. It's called COVID Diaries Colorado. They were all recorded on Thursday, April 16th. Today, Dr. Peter Stubenrauch takes us inside the intensive care unit at St. Joseph's Hospital in Denver. Almost all of the patients have COVID-19 and are on ventilators. That's unusual, even for the ICU. CPR's Kelly Griffin reports. Dr. Stubenrauch, a critical care pulmonologist with National Jewish, starts the day at 7.30. Before he makes rounds, he compares notes with a colleague, Dr. Mana Amir. She specializes in pulmonary medicine with Kaiser Permanente. They talk about patient care and what makes this work so hard right now. 
There's uncertainty about the best treatments. There's the challenge of connecting with patients through layers of protective gear and worries about their own safety. I think the biggest fear I have is taking this home to my family and not so much getting it myself, but creating, creating problems for people I love. Yeah, likewise. Um, I think my little girl is having a very tough time with it because I just can't be as affectionate with her as I normally am um, because I'm worried that she will contract something and she has a little bit of asthma and so I'm just always nervous around her. Dr. Amir says she's struck by how impersonal medicine has become because of the coronavirus. They don't ever really get to see us. Oftentimes they're prone, meaning that they're laying on their stomachs um, on a ventilator. Um, We come in, we're gowned, gloved, masked, so they just see our eyes. Uh, The fact that they are not able to have their loved ones nearby, um, even when some of them are becoming more and more restless and and needing comfort care and things like that, they're not able to have their loved ones around. And I, I can't even imagine how terrifying that must be yeah. for them. I know the nurses tend to be the ones who really are the emotional support backbone for the patients in here. Just talking to the patients if they're in a state or being there and letting the patients know there's someone there and they're not going through this by themselves. And rightfully so, the nurses are spending less time in the room unless it's absolutely necessary right now. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a different world right now. Well, maybe we should go do a little bit of rounding. Thanks for your time, Dr. Amir. I appreciate it. So. Thanks, Peter. Dubin Rauch checks with the medical team about each of his nine patients. He weighs whether to use traditional treatments for respiratory problems or some of the many new protocols being developed across the country or a combination. He says medical knowledge is moving fast and a treatment or procedure recommended two weeks ago may not be recommended now. There's also a cadre of patients in the second half of the intensive care unit that have been vented for greater than two weeks, which fills me with a lot of worry. I'm just worried that going up up against three weeks, that also argues their prognosis isn't particularly good. Um, and balancing that fine line of being encouraging to the family but also truthful is really tricky so I'm thinking about how I'm going to address family members when I speak to them later in the afternoon. Stubenrauk says another challenge is getting the sedation right for patients. He says the hospital has a borderline shortage of the traditional IV sedatives that are critical for patients on ventilators. So we've been having to resort to some unusual techniques in terms of conserving our IV sedation, using a lot of medications through the feeding tube. So essentially, they're oral medications. This has posed another set of issues for us because these type of medications tend to be associated with more delirium, which ultimately results in people requiring longer courses of mechanical ventilation outside of the lung disease alone. So it's been sort of a frustrating time. In the middle of a 12-hour shift in the ICU, Peter Steubenrock has a moment for a quick break and the comfort of a familiar routine. I'm actually sitting in the call room right now after having been into everyone's room. And I like to take take a quick second and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I've been doing that for years. I just bring my own 
food, although I have to admit they've been bringing some pretty good food around from uh, restaurants that are donating food to the health care workers. Patient care always includes helping families navigate illness. COVID-19 robs families of being together for that process. And that makes conversations that are already difficult even more so. I also had a telephone meeting with the daughter of a patient who was recently admitted. And I've tried to focus on setting appropriate expectations for family members so they can appreciate when an intubated patient is in our intensive care unit. This course can go on for a long period of time. It's difficult to know how to couch these discussions in a way that helps the family appreciate your by no means have any interest in giving up on a patient, particularly someone who came into the intensive care unit relatively recently, but also set the expectation that we're observing a lot of patients who remain on mechanical ventilation for prolonged periods of time and can quite suddenly take turns for the worse and pass away. By the end of his shift, Dr. Steubenrauch sees good outcomes. A couple of his patients may have recovered enough to be off the ventilator soon. With another doctor taking over his patients for the night, he can try to leave work behind. When he gets home, he performs what's become a ritual after a day in the ICU. He takes off his clothes in the garage and showers before settling in with his wife and two teenagers. He jokes his teenage daughter is a pro at social distancing from her parents, but he admits he still hugs his wife and son. It's hard to keep his guard up all the time. I'm Kelly Griffin, CPR News. This story is part of our COVID Diaries Colorado, where we worked with more than 20 news outlets to tell the stories of more than 60 people all on the same day, April 16th. You can read the stories at CPR.org. When we come back, the Lumineers share personal stories of addiction and overcoming. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Lauren from Denver. I choose to support CPR because NPR is my primary source of news, and I've come to highly value their unbiased, thoughtful reporting. I depend on podcasts like Up First to keep me informed and to broaden my perspective. I'm currently living abroad right now, and having a trusted news source that keeps me informed about what's happening has been more important to me than ever. And it's also been a comfort to be connected in solidarity with other Americans during this global crisis through NPR. Thank you, CPR, for all you do. We're going to spend the rest of the show on something special. The Lumineers have sold millions of records and played stadiums around the world. Their latest album is about the pain of addiction and what it's like to see a loved one struggle with substance abuse. Before social distancing and restrictions at concert venues, the Lumineers shared the personal stories that inspired their music and played a stripped-down version of some of their songs. They joined Back From Broken host Vic Vela at the Clock Tower Cabaret in Denver. So, are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. A little while ago, we got to do something pretty amazing. That lively crowd you just heard was actually really small, only about 100 people. And me and this super excited audience got to hear the Lumineers, a band that's toured the world and played stadiums. Oh. 
This show was different. The two bandmates, Jeremiah Freights and Wes Schultz, sat down for an interview for this podcast and agreed to play for a small audience of people in recovery, or those connected to it somehow. You see, these guys recently made an entire album about how addiction affects generations of a family. The record is called Three. So today, we've got something a little different for you. An intimate conversation, plus some good music, with the Lumineers, recorded in Denver, where Wes and Jeremiah live. This is Back From Broken, from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. To kick off this special event, the Lumineers opened the evening with a song about a woman who is struggling with substance use, and the character is based on someone close to Wes Schultz. So this first song is called Gloria.
Right on, guys. Thanks a lot. One uh, song set. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be hard, right? You're just getting started, and you got to sit down and talk, right? I'm pumped. Yeah, I'm a little pumped up right now. These first few questions are going to be difficult. <laughs> um, you guys just played Gloria, uh, which is uh, from the new album. When I first heard this album that you guys put out, I had a tremendous emotional response to it as someone who has gone through recovery because I lived so many of those characters, or I could see a lot of my own family members as some of those characters. Gloria is living a troubled life as an alcoholic. Wes, let me ask you a few questions first. Who inspired Gloria? It's The answer's kind of complicated because I think part of what we set out to do is tell these stories as real and as raw as we could. And, and I think I wanted to keep a level of anonymity with the person I was singing about. But it's, it's a member of my family that... Um, I think as, as I dove into it, I, I think one of the goals was to try to write it. And if, if she heard it, she would feel like it was telling the truth, it, you know, from both sides. I wanted there to be her side of the story, too. So in the song, um, there's a piano that takes over when Jer is like, dit, 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 dit. Mm-hmm. and that's sort, mm-hmm. of, that's sort of the other perspective. The, the song starts out from, I think, like the child's perspective saying to the parent, kind of like, why are you doing this, you know? And then the piano part is the, the other side of the story. Did you know me when I was younger than I could take the whole world with me? And it's like, I was somebody, and I still am. And, and I think that that was the, the hard part about writing about addiction was not trying to make it like a caricature, but to try to tell stories through scenes instead of trying to sum it all up. It's yeah. too big of a subject. Well, know? and also, like, you nailed it. Even addicts at our worst there's still a, a part of us that wants to be better and, and has those memories of being like well. Yeah. And so hearing that piano against your really strong lyrics is really, it's, it's quite a contrast. Yeah, and I, I found the original demo and it was like, um, heaven help me now, heaven show the way, get me back on my own two feet. There's this eternal hope almost like when you're drowning, you're always gonna try to swim to the surface and get air. Mm-hmm. It's a part of being a human being is believing and having hope, even in the worst of circumstances. Yeah. Um, even when some, even when your whole family feels hopeless about it. So, yeah, it's a, it's definitely it was like a high wire act trying to write about it, just because I knew she might hear it, and I wanted her to understand it instead of feel attacked or something like that. Well, let's talk about her, and we're not going to say precisely which family member this is because, of course, we want to protect her privacy, but. Uh, how did your relative's downward spiral begin? I don't know. I mean, that, that's like the great mystery. Um, I just, I think if, if, if we knew, maybe that would be an easy place mm-hmm. to address it. Um, I feel like my introduction to it was that you don't talk about it and you don't mention it and, you know, it's a taboo in the family. So that really threw me off because it was so obvious and we were all kind of playing along with the charade. You told me recently, Wes, um, speaking of love, that the hardest part about dealing with your relative's addiction is that you love her so much, right? What do you mean by that? Like, why is that so hard? I think that just part of it is that every part of, fiber of my body just wanted to stop caring and just say, well, go do, go live your life. I don't care. Like, you can't hurt me anymore. But that's like, it's almost what's beautiful about it is like families 
band together in this way that they don't even sometimes have a choice. It's it's just what makes I think addiction a social disease. It makes it a family uh, event. It's not like this thing that's isolated to that person. When I was using um, really hard, the worst thing was when people would tell me that they loved me. Because I, the last thing you want to hear when you're closing the blinds and shutting off your phone and, and you're getting high by yourself is that you're hurting someone and that people care about you. That It was hell for me to hear that. Yeah. But ultimately, though, it, it helped in my recovery. And Wes... The lyrics from the song, Gloria, they found you on the floor. Gloria, my hand was tied to yours. That's the metaphor you're talking about, right? That their addiction is your addiction, too. Yeah, I mean, you feel like you're on the roller coaster with them. And it leads, for me, that, for me, was a source of, at first, a lot of anger. You know, like resentment. Like, why are you bringing me? I didn't I didn't sign up for this ride. Yeah, We're all taking care of ourselves. Why can't you take care of your... It's a very, like, defensive... Why are you hurting me, kind of thing? Yeah. And to clarify what I said, even though I didn't want to hear that people loved me, thank God I heard that. Yeah. Because ultimately that, that registered. Um, the album follows uh, generations of a family that's really become crippled by drugs and alcohol. Why did you guys want to tell a big story about a whole family to talk about addiction? Why did you choose a family? Well, I think part of it was um, there was this mystery about, like, how does that cycle break if... Can it be unbroken? Is it handed down? Is it social? Is it genetic? What's going on here? I think using generations to see that and explore that, I think, was important. And it felt like putting this in different bodies was, instead of just this one person, felt more authentic to, I guess, how how big it was, how big of a, like, thing it was. And you see a ripple effect in families. And so I think wanting to know... If there was a way out, but not really having a resolution, the album doesn't have that and the songs don't really have that. It's more just how do we get out of this and without like abandoning someone, you know? Were you guys at all hesitant? You're the Lumineers. You guys are a big deal. Um, Jeremiah, were you at all hesitant to put out this kind of album? Because it's, it's really heavy stuff. I'm sure a lot of your fans were surprised by it. Yeah, I think... There was a moment of hesitation, but in some sort of abstract way, I think we knew the music was great. Uh, it felt like personally the strongest album that we've ever written together, it being our third Lumineers album. We've been writing together probably 15 years now, written a ton of songs, a ton of bad ones, and I think some good ones. And this album, <laughs> this album felt like our best album to date, not just because it's our newest album. I think that's like the artist's tendency, your newest stuff you think is the greatest. I actually think this is our best album. And uh, some people are like, this is sad, or this mm-hmm. feels heavy. And it's like, well, literally any song that is sad or heavy has probably changed your life for better. Um, yeah. I don't really know that much, like, sugary, saccharine songs. That, like, you know, Baby Shark, that's not really, <laughs> that's not going to change your life. Um, whether it's heartache, addiction, some sort of trauma, tragedy, um, that's the good stuff in life. It's, it's sure. a sad song, yeah. Baby Shark. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are going to play Baby Shark tonight, I hope, right? <laughs> Um, was this almost like a therapeutic thing for you guys, the making of this album? If the goal of therapy is to feel no closure on the subject, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I, I feel like maybe in, in some ways, yes. 
I think it's it's a very uh, neat way to wrap it up, and I've done that where it's kind of like this is free therapy. I write songs. Uh, it's not totally true. I think it's partially just um, it's cathartic to scream. It's cathartic to express yeah. all of these things. I think mostly it's cathartic to to try, to try to tell the truth. I think I felt so I felt so bound and like tied up by like the idea that we weren't allowed to talk about this among each other or to that person. Uh, as candidly as maybe it was happening, um, that really freaked me out. And I, part of this album, like, allowed me to say things that I felt very muzzled. Wes, your family member, um, what's her current situation? I mean, we tried to get her a place and, um, you know, so she could take care of herself and have her own space. And that kind of blew up in our faces and um, she ended up uh, in jail and then, homeless and we're not really sure we placed the missing persons report and we're not really entirely sure what's going on and um i think that's that's that that ghost that follows you around where you don't even know the next call what it's going to be about or where it's coming from and the lack of closure i think is really difficult about the situation too yeah um I want to hear you guys play some more music and sure. i think you guys want to hear that too um what are we going to hear? Well, this next song uh, made our album explicit lyrics. So um, we're going to have to bleep it because it's CPR. So you can imagine the moment, but uh, there's like three F-bombs in this song. They're just going to be like ghosts. It's called Leader of the Landslide. Denver band The Lumineers, speaking with Back From Broken's Vic Bella, recorded in a cabaret before social distancing restrictions went into place. 
When we come back, we've heard about Wes's family, but how has Jeremiah's life changed because of addiction? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Give back my keys. Give back my chair. Take back those clothes you always left on the floor. We've been hearing from so many readers and listeners about how their lives have changed during the coronavirus pandemic. Walk on the sidewalk, they get off and get into the street, and I try and smile. And each weekday in our evening newsletter, we're asking Coloradans to tell us what their new normal looks like. Oh, work stresses me out the most. I'm sad that I can't be with my grandkids. I've been FaceTiming every night, and I've never Work been lives, worries, time. silver linings. Read those profiles by signing up for our newsletter at CPR.org lookout. Before the break, we heard how addiction impacted a family member of the Lumineers, Wes Schultz. How about his bandmate, Jeremiah Freights? The duo spoke with Vic Bella, host of CPR's podcast about recovery, Back from Broken. This episode was recorded at a cabaret in Denver before social distancing restrictions went into place. There's another reason the Lumineers were so motivated to write an album all about addiction that we haven't even talked about yet. When Jeremiah was about 14... He lost his brother Josh to a heroin overdose. Josh was older. He was 19. And these guys who are now the Lumineers also grew up together in suburban New Jersey. So Wes also knew Josh. They were actually really good friends. They loved boxing and making art together. And Jeremiah, he remembers having fun with his big brother too. I can easily remember the good times, like going to the beach and building Legos together. And yeah. he played a lot of guitar. He was, he'd play like Pink Floyd, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, and our bedrooms were right next to each other. So that, I, that was a huge like influence. And I remember I was learning drums at the time, so we'd kind of jam together and play, you know, like Painted Black by The Stones, or good he stuff. was learning Pink Floyd guitar solos. And um, it was pretty. I don't know if it was my parents shielding me from it, or if my brother was good at hiding it, or if it was just one of those things that it was right there in front of my face and I chose not to see it. I don't really remember though a whole lot of like, which maybe was made it worse the shock when he did die because I was like, oh, it's not, it's not at that point, you know, that doesn't happen to someone like me. That's never, you know, that's not going to happen to him. Um, so I don't really remember a whole lot of those kind of like you know, typical scenes of like, oh, he was out all night and we were worried sick. I'm sure my parents could give different stories, different tales, but yeah, I don't really remember stuff like that, to be honest. What kinds of substances was he using? Uh, He was using a lot. I mean, he was caught in high school by this history teacher. He was smoking weed in his car and walked in from, you know, like the outside field or something, walked in. And it's sort of... I don't think it was the history teacher's fault, obviously, but it sort of spiraled. Uh, it, it splintered this thing where my brother uh, got sent down to the nurse, and then you get you get um, like suspended for two days or some sort of like mandated two day suspension. And if I remember correctly, he never went back to Ramsey High School. He went to a, a different school, a different okay. high school, with, for lack of a better description, other troubled teens, other troubled youths. Um, I remember one time. In October, about nine months before he died, my mom came into the room and said, like, you know, honey, your your brother was arrested last night. He was in a neighboring town in the, like a grocery store parking lot around two or three in the morning. And 
I think he had uh, taken PCP, smoked PCP. I don't even know what you do with that, but I think he had smoked it. And then supposedly he went into the supermarket and drank some Drano. He ran out of drugs and thought that was a good idea and was in the ICU for about two or three weeks with, I think, second-degree burns on his like esophagus. And, you know, at that time, I think I was 13, 14. I didn't really have a, any gauge of what was going on. And I can actually remember thinking, he'll get through this. This is a phase. It's like a bad case of strep throat or something. Like you get better, you get yeah. you take antibiotics or you get through it and we'll, we'll laugh about this someday. Um, that obviously never happened. But I, yeah, I just remember a couple of instances like the ones I just described where I had zero idea of how I would have handled that. Um, even now, I have a you know, a 20 month old son of my own. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any age where you'd really be equipped to understand how to deal with that. You, you, you would try your best, obviously as a parent, um, how to, how to help your son or daughter out, whatever is going on. But yeah. Can you, what ultimately, how did, how did things end with Josh? I know he. So basically that was in, I think October of 2000. And then he went into uh, the hospital ICU, had a lot of anger towards, it seemed like everybody. I'm sure he was in a really terrible spot, but um, and I remember he never came home to our house. There was my grandmother uh, lived in Pompton Lakes, which was a couple of towns over, mm-hmm. and uh, he ultimately went to go live with her. And I guess that was a way to change location. And he was in and out of rehabs. And um, yeah, it was around Memorial Day weekend where um, he was living with my grandmother and she went to church and I think she called up to Josh and thought he was sleeping in. And when she came back from church, she went upstairs and I think she like touched his leg or something. And it was like a block of ice. And then she called, I remember she called our house in uh, Ramsey and I picked up the phone and I thought, I honestly thought she was dying. She was so hysterical. I thought something was wrong with her. And then she kept sobbing and saying, Josh, Josh, Josh. And then oh my gosh. I gave the phone to my mom and the context of it, just to try to add a little levity, I was playing a computer game with my buddy, Simon, and it was just this absurd, like we're playing this game and it's like, I don't know, a shooter game or something. Mm-hmm. And like my mom is like, you know, crying at the table and I'm like, oh dude, I think you got to go. Like, it's just this absurd. <laughs> um, I'm sure my mom was like, huh? like Simon, do you have to go home now? <laughs> like, uh, I don't think we really knew. I, my mom probably knew and I, you know, the first, they say the first st- step of uh, what grief is denial. And I remember running upstairs and I was changing my clothes and I just like, yeah, like the most massive amount of denial, like this is not happening. And, um, yeah, we drove over there and yeah, the bad news was true. So to what extent did, did you guys help each other through that time? Four years later, we, we got together and really started spending time together. And so when me and Wes started writing, one of the first songs that I think we ever tried to write together was like, a lyrical song about Josh's passing. And then ultimately we wrote songs about Wes's father passing away of cancer, or it was immediately like this cathartic, even though we were also starting out doing covers of, you know, cover band type songs, mm-hmm. we started writing originals. And for me, that was like the real high. That was the massive addiction was writing original songs with Wes and trying to sort through all these feelings and like misunderstanding and you know, grief and things like that. So, you guys had to grow up really fast. And so you guys started at a very young age writing about grief. Yeah, and, and oddly, I mean, we had a town of 15,000 people, but I knew at least a couple of people that I was friends with that overdosed and passed away in this tiny little town. Hmm. 
Jeremiah, I know you don't want to talk too much about yourself. Um, you also had a period where you were partying a little too much yeah. for your liking. And I want to congratulate you. You've been sober for how long now? Uh, be five years in August. So let's just say four and a half. All right. Yeah. That's great. Why did you decide to get sober? For me, I think it was maybe that old adage, tired of being sick and what is sick it? Sick and, sick being, and tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think it just was, it really dawned on me that it was affecting relationships. Um, I think the biggest person that saved my life was my wife. Um, I think that her seeing it before, I think I was going down the road where I would have been um, eventually maybe closer to a Gloria-like character. Oh, wow. You think you're never going to be like that, but to be honest, I I mean, I don't know, but, um, you know, her seeing that in me early on and really being supportive of that and thankfully, too, that she doesn't, she is very... uh, you know, she'll have like half a glass of wine and be done. And I'm like, I don't get that. That's like, you know, I could have six glasses of wine and be like, let's, you know, now we've started. And I'm not necessarily proud of that. That's just a reality of but it's the truth. my it's genetic truth. makeup. Yeah. Um, I've told people at times it was like eating a cheeseburger and being like, I can't wait to have another cheeseburger. And you're like, you're already <laughs> eating a cheeseburger. And that's how it felt sometimes with drinking. And our, and our lifestyle too, um, unfortunately, I think just naturally enables it. It's funny, if you were to say, like, give me three shots of, like, tequila, people would be like, yeah. And if you're like, can I have a water? They're like, are you okay? Are you sick? <laughs> Is everything all right? And it's, it's, it's these things that I've noticed along the way of sobriety where it's, like, literally sometimes on a long international flight, it's easier to get wine than water. And I'm like, oh, where's the water lady? You know, where's the water person? Um, and I think that uh, it was – I think I realized that – about two years before I became sober that I wanted that. It was like I was not waiting for something to happen, but I think I knew subconsciously, like, this is not fun anymore. This is not improving my life. It's taking away from it in some way. But you buy into that, you know, feedback loop. And I think for me, the biggest fear I had was somehow I'm not going to become creative. That's my career. That's how, you know, that's our livelihood. That's like the, the biggest thing in my life. One of the biggest things in my life is supposedly being creative. And I'm like... You know, you lose the drugs, you lose the alcohol. And I remember playing the first probably 40, 50 shows with the Lumineers. It was a really terrifying experience because now you're on stage, you're vulnerable. Whereas you used to be able to get to a maybe a state of oblivion, you know, where you're just kind of, you're just up there and you're kind of like, I'm one with the music and, you know, <laughs> you're free. Um, now I can get to that place sober, but it took many shows of being like, wow, this is tough. There's a lot of people out there, and this is a nerve-wracking experience. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, I had a couple people in my life say, like, you will become you know, more creative. You will feel closer to music. I know you don't see that now, but promise yeah. me you will. And I was like, I definitely don't believe you. There's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> but it takes – it just you just had to experience it yourself. I mean, when I started my career in television as, as a sports anchor, I could not go on the air, or I thought I couldn't go on the air without – a shot and a, and a line. That just was total normal behavior. That's just what I do. Mm. And when I'm like, well, how can I get sober? How can I write sober? How can I tell a good story sober? And the truth is, is that you're a better storyteller because you're not clouded by drugs and alcohol. The, the best thing about it is I don't miss it. Is, and you find that you don't really need it. Yeah. No, and, it's true. Yeah. It's been interesting, though. Like, for me, I almost never use the word sober. I probably am using it more because I know the room I'm in right now. 
Um, I don't have a problem with saying I'm sober. I just think that society has made that word a bad word a little bit. Like I think personally, I tend to say I've refrained from alcohol or mm-hmm. I will still, you know, white lie to people said I've never really drank. I don't drink because I don't want to get into a therapy session yeah. with some random person after a gig and like, you know, whatever. It's like that. that's going to be a heavy 15 minutes potentially that if I'm into it, I'll get into it. But if I'm not, I don't want to, you know, inadvertently get into a heavy conversation about that. But I do think that society's kind of made that word a weird uh, stigma where, oh, you're sober? That means you were a bad person before. And it's like, well, no, I was, you're a sick person or you have, yeah. you had these tendencies or you did these things that can sometimes be deemed as being bad. And, and sometimes it's just easier not to have to explain yourself. But I think the more people talk about this stuff, the less we have to explain ourselves when we say no to a drink. Even in New Jersey, where we're from, there's, yeah, there's so many friends of friends or actual friends or family members, in my case, that have died or been close to dying from prescription drug abuse or the street drug, heroin or crack or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I still know people in my life that are even functional, you know, addicts or alcoholics. And I don't know if they know that, but I'm like, you are. I mean, (laughs) I see that. Yeah. Well, I mean... You guys have been terrific. I really, really, really appreciate you guys talking about this stuff tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us here. And just a quick note about this last song from the Lumineers album 3. It's another snapshot of addiction. The lyrics are heart-wrenching. Here's the song called Donna. The Lumineers playing to an audience of people in recovery. Recovery podcast from CPR News hosted by Vic Vela. He was joined by the Lumineers, Jeremiah Freights, and Wes Schultz. You can hear the full episode or hear other episodes on Apple Podcasts where it's being featured this week. And if you want to hear more from the Lumineers, the band will perform on The Tonight Show tonight. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hate the name Dada. Love to judge strangers.